Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Phil Sansom. And with me, Chris Smith. Coming up is mixing vaccines, the best way to fight coronavirus. Scientists capture an elusive element, it's number 99, and the physics behind why wombats poo cubes. Plus, what happens when the scientist becomes the experiment? We're examining the strange world of self-experimentation, including biologists dosing themselves with DIY COVID vaccines in the months after the pandemic began. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. It's been a week of COVID contrast, hasn't it? On the one hand, we mourned the passing of Captain Sir Tom Moore, the centenarian whose 100 laps of his care home raised millions for the NHS. And at the same time, we marked a vaccination milestone. More than 10 million people across the UK have now received at least one vaccination for coronavirus as part of the biggest programme of its kind in the history of the NHS. An amazing achievement. And one of those vaccines, that's AstraZeneca's vaccine, seems, based on a preliminary report, to do more than just prevent severe disease. It stops people spreading COVID as well. The report claims that nearly 70% fewer infections were picked up in people who'd had their first dose of the jab. And that's very good news because it suggests that as well as being protected themselves, vaccinated people are also helping to protect others by being less likely to pass on the infection. Also this week, the government's vaccine minister, Nadim Zahawi, announced a new £7 million study. To look at the effect of using two different vaccines together. Now, mixing vaccines is likely to become something of a priority in future because owing to the way that they interact with the body, some of the vaccines that we're using might not work more than once. So we need more options. The other big question that still remains unanswered is whether we've got the gap between doses right. The UK has introduced a policy of waiting 12 weeks to maximise the number of people who can be protected in the first instance. This was the first question that Chris put to immunologist Peter Openshaw when they spoke about the vaccine initiative earlier this week. Peter thinks that giving jabs too close together would be a bad idea. Sometimes by giving too much of a thing, you can actually drive down the immune response. The new evidence coming out generally shows that you do get quite good protection from that first dose, which lasts all the way through until the three-month second dose. And indeed, you may end up with a better immune response as a result of having delayed the second dose. The data that we've got to go on that's informing what you're saying is based on AstraZeneca's vaccine. Does the same apply then to the Pfizer vaccine? Because one criticism people are levelling at the current strategy is the Pfizer vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine are two quite different things and therefore to assume that what goes for one will apply to the other is a misstep. 
some of the investigators have said that they don't think it's going to make any difference whether you make the spike protein of the coronavirus one way or make it another. I think that's a reasonable hypothesis, but it absolutely needs to be tested. The other point to make is that the vaccines were developed at great speed. A very short interval between the first dose and the second dose was decided on largely in order to make sure that the vaccine studies could be done very fast. That doesn't mean to say that that was necessarily the best interval between the first dose and the second dose. And I've certainly, in vaccine studies that I've done myself, I've found that sometimes by giving the second dose too quickly, you can actually get a much weaker immune response. A question which is also surfacing a lot is people have got an eye on what's been happening in Europe. They've got an eye on the fact that the current bottleneck with vaccination appears to stem from a supply problem. We, we just can't get enough vaccine in the door fast enough. Therefore, people are legitimately saying, well, if I can't access a second dose of the thing I had the first time and I have to use a different vaccine product, is that necessarily a bad thing? That actually might be a perfectly good strategy. There's many examples of vaccination regimes where a different vaccine has been used in the first and the second dose. And indeed, some of the vaccines can't actually be repeated again and again because they are within an adenovirus vector. So with some of these vaccines, it is actually a big advantage to be able to prime with one and boost with another. So what you're saying is that because, say, AstraZeneca's vaccine is delivered by a disabled virus to actually get the message about the spike of the coronavirus into the body in the first place, you're going to get an immune response to that disabled virus that's the Trojan horse. Are the government potentially in trouble then if they need to revaccinate people? They wouldn't be able to use in people who've already had AstraZeneca vaccine. They couldn't use it again. Yes, that is a potential problem. And I think it illustrates the reason why it's so good to have a rich pipeline of different types of vaccine. How is it looking in terms of how the vaccines are thought to protect against the current slew of variants that we're seeing emerging in various geographies around the world? Well, at the moment, things are looking quite good in terms of our own homegrown variant. It still seems to be susceptible to the immune response. But I, I think we're all expecting that over time, the main driver for evolution of the virus will become the host immune response, either due to vaccination or due to previous exposure to the virus. When that becomes the driving force, then we are going to have to actually reformulate the vaccines to match the currently circulating strains. Peter Openshaw there. And uh, of course, it's also worth noting a report has just come out looking at the South African variant of coronavirus and its interaction with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And while it still seems to prevent severe disease with that South African variant, people are still capable of catching the infection, having been vaccinated and therefore potentially able to pass it on. So it's certainly an open question and one that will be being monitored very, very significantly. Let's go even smaller than viruses now, to elements. Einsteinium is one of the cleverer sounding elements you'll see on your periodic table, but it's a lot further down the list than something like carbon or gold or mercury. While carbon is number 6, gold is number 79, and mercury is number 80, Einsteinium is the 99th element. And it's also radioactive, which means it doesn't stick around for very long before it breaks down into something else. And that means it's really hard to study, even though it was first discovered in the 1950s. But this week, scientists at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory managed to capture some in a molecular cage. 
Kit Chapman didn't work on the study, but he has quite literally written a book on the periodic table. It's called Super Heavy, and he took Adam Murphy through the discovery. Einstein doesn't exist on Earth. Anything beyond uranium, which is element 92, and remember Einstein is 99, just doesn't exist on Earth. And usually these are made through uh, nuclear reactions or particle accelerators, but Einsteinium and fermium were actually first discovered from the remains of a thermonuclear bomb explosion. There was a bomb explosion in the 1950s in the Pacific. They were testing the world's first hydrogen bomb, and they actually ordered fighter planes to fly inside the cloud and gather up debris. And from those filters, we managed to find Einsteinium and fermium. Looking at that, can you give us kind of the rundown of what they've done here at the Los Alamos lab? Well, this is really impressive because there isn't very much Einsteinium in the world. As I mentioned, it just doesn't exist on Earth. You have to make it. And so they managed to get 200 nanograms, which is a tiny, tiny amount. And they started to look at its properties. Now, because it's radioactive, we haven't done many experiments on Einsteinium. What they did was they took an Einsteinium atom and they wrapped it in a sort of molecular cage. And they looked at it from that angle. And they began to do some x-ray tests on it. And from that, they could actually study the bonds and how it bonds with this, what we call a ligand, this, this cage it's in. And what it found was that it didn't follow the pattern they expected. It doesn't behave like the other actinides, some of the lighter actinides next to it. It starts to behave a little bit differently. And that's really interesting. I understand that we don't have very much of it, but how do you determine that this thing exists and then know so little about it for so long? The problem is making it. So there isn't any use for Einsteinium in the world. There's no practical applications. Californium, which is a bit lighter, that's element 98, the next one along, that's really useful for the, for the oil industry and for a host of other different applications. And so there's a reason to make it. And so there's a reactor in Oak Ridge in Tennessee and a reactor in Russia. And they can actually create these elements. They have the ability to do so. And when they're making Californium, they're probably going to make a little bit of Einsteinium as well because of the way they're doing it. Essentially, they nudge things up the periodic table. And so it's only so almost as a byproduct that you're actually producing Einsteinium. That's why we just don't have much of it. It's also it's only got a half life of, I think, 275 days which is incredibly short. It's not the shortest. Some of the ones even bigger have half-lives of minutes or seconds, but it's not very long at all, which means that it rapidly degrades. So you've got to be very quick in terms of the experiments you do. As you were saying there, Einsteinium doesn't have any practical applications. So, so why does it matter that we can do this with this now? Well, it's one of the building blocks of the universe. And the more knowledge we have about the universe and how it works, the more we can understand things. Just because Einsteinium doesn't exist on Earth, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist in nature. You'll find it inside supernovae. You'll find it inside of neutron stars colliding. And so the more that we can understand about how these building blocks work, how they interact with things, how uh, what we call relativistic effects affects the way that chemicals work, really gives us a clearer picture of how the universe is constructed. And that means potentially we have all kinds of applications in the future that we just can't think about yet. What's the next frontier in this kind of research? What's the next big thing that's coming out? The next big thing really is hard to predict. We're hoping that it could be a new element. So if this stuff has gone over to Japan and they've fired probably calcium into it, a very interesting isotope of calcium called calcium 48, which was used to create some other elements, then potentially we could have element 119. And if that's the case, then we have an entire new row of the periodic table starting. 
And that just opens up all kinds of possibilities. And it's dead exciting too. Kit Chapman there speaking with Adam Murphy. The work that he was discussing has just come out in the journal Nature. Let's go inside the body now. When you're infected with a microorganism, the machinery of the human immune system kicks in and a whole array of specialised chemicals and cells work together to kick out the invader. But sometimes the immune system overreacts and starts to do damage in its own right. This is called sepsis. It's very hard to treat, can often lead to death. This week, US researchers pinpointed a region of the genetic code that can control the immune response to sepsis, specifically a bit of RNA, the stuff that carries away the messages from your DNA. Martin Kashara spoke to Susan Carpenter. We have identified this genetic material, actually an RNA gene, that when you remove it from an animal, that animal is now resistant. It does not get sepsis. How did you find out actually what it does? First, we started working on this particular gene in human cells. And then we were very excited to see that it is conserved across species. And so we could take a mouse and remove this gene. And what we were really intrigued to find was that that mouse is protected from sepsis. What would the molecule do in normal cells? Surely it's necessary. We think like everything in the immune system, it's all about balance. This is a gene that's on in cells at high levels normally, and that during an inflammatory response, it goes rapidly down. And so we know that it's playing this role in helping to toggle the responses of that particular cell. How can removing just this one thing have such a big effect? It really kind of tells us something about the importance of this gene. There's so many genes involved in these responses that just removing this one in particular can have this strong impact. And it's not unusual. We see this with particular proteins. If you remove them from the system, they can have positive impacts. So, for example, many drugs are designed to target a particular protein during an inflammatory response, and that gives relief to patients. If you took me and took this molecule away from my cells, could I still fight disease? This story is in its very early phase. But what we can say right now is that with the immune system, everything is about timing. And so we think being able to manipulate the levels of this gene at particular times could have an impact in how you respond to infections. When could this discovery one day help people suffering from sepsis? Well, that is our ultimate goal with these projects is to get a better understanding to be able to eventually have some therapeutic targets. And right now, this is in the very early stage. This is very basic research that we've done a lot of work on a mouse model. And our next phase is to move into understanding this better in humans and human cells from patients with sepsis. The University of California, Santa Cruz's Susan Carpenter. That study just came out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Why do kittens, puppies and human animals play? From pets rough and tumbling with each other to team sports. Join me, Katie Haler, as I find out why larking about is so important for health. Check out Naked Neuroscience on the Naked Scientist website or wherever you get your podcasts. Come. 
coming up, the mystery of the world's strangest shaped poo gets solved, and the story of self-experimentation in science, from 18th century doctors to modern biohackers. Before all that, though, this month, a fleet of spacecraft from the United Arab Emirates, China and the United States are all reaching Mars. The missions have all coincided because they took advantage of a two-month launch window last year when the Earth and Mars were closest on their orbits. Now, this only happens once every two years, so you can see why it was a case last year of now or never. But the missions are a first on many levels. It's China's first independent Mars landing. It's NASA's Perseverance mission's first time taking a helicopter to Mars, amazingly. And it's the UAE's first space foray. Their orbiter is called HOPE. HOPE is a mass of honeycombed aluminium about the size of a small car. And speaking to me on Sunday, just as it was nearing the Red Planet, was chair of the UAE space agency, Sarah Al-Amiri. Sarah, could you just tell us, what's the plan? So we sent this probe to investigate the weather system of Mars throughout an entire Martian year and to understand the weather dynamics more thoroughly than they've ever been studied before. The difference between this mission and other missions is that other missions have studied the weather system of Mars, but only during two times of the day. That's around 2 a.m. and 2 p.m. local time on Mars. What we're doing is understanding better the full dynamics. So, for example, the phenomena of dust storms on Mars that start in a localized area and cover the entire planet. Another piece of the puzzle that we'd like to fill in is what role does Mars's weather system play in atmospheric loss? And therefore, we're able to link the, for example, dust storms, especially global dust storms, two rates of escape of hydrogen and oxygen. And that fits in very well with the global understanding of what happened to Mars, especially what happened to Mars from the perspective of climate change. Sarah, I'm quite shocked to hear that Mars has weather at all. Given not, not having an atmosphere, I'd imagine their forecast is a lot of you know cold, very cold darkness of space. It does have a very light atmosphere. There is a cloud system on Mars. There's water vapor that circulates uh, around the planet. You've also got dust within the lower atmosphere of Mars where the weather system is. It's actually interesting, the weather system on Mars, and hence why we're understanding it better throughout an entire year, because that hasn't been covered extensively. And scientifically, it actually does have a good link into looking into Mars today, just to understand from the wider space of things, this historically what happened to this planet. Right. Okay. So you've got sort of the traces of an atmosphere and you've got some weather going on. Your HOPE probe is going to be orbiting, if all goes well, around Mars. I assume it's not got a weather vane because that's pretty low tech. So what's your high tech equivalent? We're orbiting around Mars in a very unique orbit. Like I said, the previous orbiters have orbited from the north to the south pole and they're very close to Mars. We're about 20,000 kilometers at our closest point and 43,000 kilometers at our furthest point. So we look at the lower atmosphere of Mars, that's where the weather is happening. We use the infrared spectrometer and that allows us to measure dust, it allows us to measure the cloud system water vapor. Also an ultraviolet spectrometer and that actually looks at how far a cloud of hydrogen and oxygen shrouds Mars and that's where atmospheric escape happens and that's what it measures. All this stuff can't be cheap. So why is the UAE getting in on the science of Mars? Why send hope now? 
The first and primary objective of this mission is to build capabilities. We are a country that's slowly transitioning into a nation that is based on science and technology. And space, especially planetary exploration, allows you to develop a lot of capabilities in just one program and one mission. And today we have engineers who are able to design and develop a very complex and autonomous system. And it's already a very difficult mission to undergo. Only half of the missions have succeeded on their first time to get into orbit around Mars. And that gives us a sort of shift in mindset and as a nation that was built on commodities and natural resources. So it's a great transition point for us. Well, Sarah, I certainly wish you best of luck. That's Sarah Al-Amiri explaining the HOPE Mars probe from the United Arab Emirates. And we are happy to report that it's successfully in orbit now around Mars. Now, they say you can't fit a square peg through a round hole. That's according to English writer Sidney Smith from about 1805. But here in 2021, scientists have shown exactly how wombats can do this because they produce cube-shaped poo. And Eva Higginbotham spoke to scientist David Hu to find out how. Wombats are marsupials the size of an obese toddler, the face of a teddy bear and the nose of a koala, and they don't like each other. They like to live in sort of separate territories. What people most know them for is the way they defend their territories, and they do it with little flags, feces. They make latrines, you know, as tall as a wombat can climb with its short stubby legs, which is not very tall, usually a stump or a rock. And they'll get on top of this rock and um, defecate. They defecate about 100 cubes a day, and they'll leave about 10 or so as a calling card. I cannot believe that a hundred, a hundred times a day and they're building essentially a tower of poo outside their house. Yeah, they're separate latrines and they'll dump a hundred cubes sort of dispersed among the various latrines. For years, people had known that these wombat feces are different from all the other mammals, that they're cubic, but no one knew exactly how an animal can make anything that's this strangely shaped. They're kind of the, uh, the size and color of a Godiva chocolate or an Almond Joy mini bar with one nut, but they smell like grassy poop and probably not very tasty. (laughs) Thank you. So what did you do? Our first task was finding a good collaborator. So we sought out Scott Carver, who's um, a wombat expert and works with wombats. And he shipped us intestines, full intact intestines and wombats feces through the mail. It was around Christmas time, so it was, a, it was one of the best Christmas presents I've ever gotten, uh, wombat <laughs> intestines. We opened them up and they had tiny little presents inside. I'm very happy to see them. <laughs> one of the first discoveries we made was that the cubes happen inside the wombat. They start out as a yogurt-like slurry and they eventually solidify, dry. In the last uh, meter of the intestines or so, they were just sort of a factory line of cubes. And so it was amazing to see inside the body going from a sort of a amorphous, a sort of strangely shaped solid to something that had edges and flat faces. The other thing that we noticed is that the cubes were arranged very nicely. When we hung the intestines from the ceiling, we noticed that after they finished swinging, all the corners and edges of the intestines aligned. And that meant that the cubes, they had a clock in the intestines that was telling them where to make the corners and where to make the flat faces. So we knew there was something in the intestines themselves that was communicating where to put the different parts of the cube. We performed these materials tests and measured how much it stretches. And we found that there are certain stripes on the intestines that stretched less than the others. So some parts of the intestines are four times as stretchy as the stiff parts. The rest we had to turn to mathematical modeling to basically simulate oscillation of the intestines, try to simulate the properties of feces, and see how the two would interact until we got corners and flat faces. So you went into the model 
knowing that, okay, so the testins has a more stretchy bit and a less stretchy bit. You input that into a computer algorithm and then what happens? We wrote the equations for how the intestine should move if they're contracted like a muscle. And over many, many contractions, we saw that the stiff sections would produce corners at their midpoint. How long is wombat feces inside the wombat? So when we eat something, it's basically out of our bodies in one to two days. And a wombat is uh, three to five days. And in part, that's because they're very drought tolerant. They want to capture as much water as possible from the feces before it leaves. And it's also that time that allows the intestines to do their sculpting work. The feces, as it gets drier, it gets very, very solid-like. The longer time it takes allows the corners to get formed a little bit more, like a square. David Hu from Georgia Tech, and that paper was recently published in the appropriately named journal Soft Matter. See, we don't just bring you the hard stuff here on The Naked Scientist. And now it's time for the mailbox, the part of the show where we read out your correspondence. Listener Paula, after listening to our story in January about making replacement blood vessels out of knitted human tissue, asks, would this woven vessel be able to perform diffusion properly? And is it almost like 3D printing the vessels? Paula, the scientist in question, and this was uh, Nicolas Leroux, says the answer is that gases and nutrients only diffuse through the walls of blood vessels that are called capillaries. They're hundreds of times smaller than the ones that he's making, and the ones he's making are for the purpose of bypass operations. They're big blood vessels. So this wouldn't be a consideration here. And regarding 3D printing, it can be a very powerful tool to create small patterns like the tiny blood vessels that you're thinking of. But for his larger blood vessels, it's just simpler to create tubes using other methods. Plus, 3D printing requires something liquid that can turn solid in the printing process. That's very difficult to do with biological materials. Thank you for your question, Paula. If you at home would like to ask us a question too, we're on Twitter. Find us at Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. In the second half of this programme, the scientists who experiment on their own bodies... It's called self-experimentation, and it has a long tradition, even helping Australian physician Barry Marshall win a Nobel Prize. Back in the 80s, he was trying to prove certain bacteria cause stomach ulcers and cancer. He couldn't get any results from infecting animals, so he decided the next best option would be to use himself. I did drink the bacteria, a few tablespoonfuls, not very much, and it didn't really... Well, actually, it's not published yet, so I won't tell you what it tasted like. (laughs) It wasn't too bad. So then uh, I was just waiting to see what would happen. About five days later, I woke up and ran into the bathroom, started throwing up. And I was vomiting for about three days, and the endoscopy was done. And sure enough, I had millions of these bacteria. So that answered this question. It said, healthy people with nothing wrong with them can catch this bacteria and then get inflammation in the stomach called gastritis. So that was then the soil upon which an ulcer would form later in life. Now, this is one of the most famous examples of self-experimentation. It won Barry and his collaborator Rob Warren the 2005 Nobel Prize in Medicine. And we are very grateful to have Barry Marshall listening to the programme. It's good to have some peer review. He sends us feedback. But there are many others that we're going to hear about now over the course of the programme, including scientists who've taken DIY 
COVID vaccines. Are they pioneering heroes, we're wondering, or simply reckless? We'll dive into the ethical issues and find out. First, let's take a tour through the history of self-experimentation. Medical historian Katrine Soldu told me that the idea goes way back in history, but started to become important to European science around the 18th century. We can identify three traditions of self-experimentation in the history of science and more particularly in the history of medicine. What's the first one? The self-experimenter in this case is convinced that before you can start experimenting on other people with something that might be toxic, you should actually take the responsibility and be the one to try it on yourself first. At the end of the 18th century, there are big debates all over Europe about the legitimacy of experimenting, for example, on prisoners, which was something that had been done for a while. And so self-experimentation, at least in a lot of cases, is also a stance against experimenting on these kinds of populations. Who specifically is telling people, stop experimenting on these vulnerable people like prisoners? You should experiment on yourself. It's a Viennese doctor called Anton Störck, and who was actually the first one to propose an actual procedure that consisted of four steps. The first step would be, as we still have it today, the chemical description of an element of nature, mainly those were plants at the time. The second step would be to experiment on animals and then a phase of self-experimentation before actually experimenting on other people. So before going to the phase that today we would call clinical experimentation. Okay, that's your first tradition. What's the second one? What we might want to call romantic self-experimentation. People that in the end of the 18th century were linked to what is now known as the romantic circles. One of their convictions was that there was one kind of principle that went throughout the entire whole of nature. And so experimenting on oneself could also teach one something about the organization of the cosmos or of nature. It sounds like you're talking about something that's almost poetic and then even approaching on spirituality. Yes, it is. And they experimented on themselves for this. There is a kind of heroic figure or strange figure in this who was called Ritter. He looked into the sun for so long directly, he actually hurt his eyes in bad ways. But there is at least one third important tradition of self-experimentation where the object of research couldn't be accessed through anything else but through introspection, observing oneself. For example, there was a French psychiatrist called uh, Jean-Jacques Moreau de Tours, who, while actually traveling with a patient in North Africa, discovered hashish and exported the drug, which didn't exist in Europe at the time, and then founded a kind of movement of self-experimentation to what was his conviction, at least, render more clear what his psychiatric patients were going through. Whatever reason people had for experimenting on themselves, did it, do you think, more often go right and was helpful or more often go wrong? I think that's quite undecided. There are self-experiments which led to Nobel Prizes in medicine, even in the 20th century. There are other self-experiments who maybe were a little bit 
either dangerous or didn't bring any results. But I don't think it is really linked to the fact that those were self-experiments. It's just the same thing for any kind of experiment, which always carries the risk of going wrong or not bringing any interesting results. I wanted to ask you as well, you've been saying the word he a lot. And based on talking to people, it does seem like almost all of these anecdotes are about men. Do you think that's because historically, a lot of scientists working in these fields were male? Or is there something in the male ego, I don't know, that makes you want to do this kind of heroic thing, if that's why you're doing it? From the 18th and 19th century, there simply weren't any women scientists at the time. We can regret it, but we can't really change it. This, of course, changed during the 20th century. The interest in maybe becoming a hero through this kind of act might play a role there. But then, of course, there is maybe something else that might play a role as well, and that is which kind of self-experimentation is actually rendered public. Do people still experiment on themselves, or has this kind of thing mostly died out? Nowadays, it's something that is sort of off the record. Of course, they can be publicized, but it's not something that can be recognized directly, at least within the scientific community, except for, of course, it bringing about an incredible result that then can no longer be ignored. Katrine sold you. Now, these practices certainly did continue in a form well into the 20th century. Mike Gibson is a former physician for the Royal Air Force who recalls just how often it happened. We tended to do experiments on ourselves for two main reasons. Firstly, to make sure that the apparatus was working properly so that when we moved on to our colleagues, we could be sure that we were not going to waste an exposure or a run. And secondly, so that when you were persuading one of your colleagues to take part in one of your unpleasant experiments, you could turn around and say, well, I've done it. It's, it's not too bad. I'm still here. One particular nasty experiment was to instrument someone with a, a soft geel temperature probe, an auditory canal probe, a rectal probe and a radio pill, jumping into a hot bath at 42 Celsius until the deep body temperature reached 38 and a half, and then jumping into a cold bath until the deep body temperature approached 35. And that was unpleasant. Uh, the first subject complained of an intense feeling of tumbling head over heels. I'm not sure how much it would be allowed now, particularly as most experiments have to go through an ethics committee, which we didn't have in, in those days. Former Air Force physician Mike Gibson. As Mike points out, science these days does have stricter ethical codes, especially when it comes to using us humans in the science. Plus, self-experimentation's unlikely to get published these days because most people agree a sample size of just one probably isn't statistically going to cut the mustard. But self-experimentation, nevertheless, is still going on. And depending on your definition, it happens a lot. Everything from off-the-record sanity checks and medical labs to your average person trying out a new diet or a new drug. Now, one person who's certainly pushing the boundary of what's possible here is biohacker Josiah Zayner, and he's with us now. So what actually is the definition of a biohacker then? A biohacker is just somebody who does science outside a traditional environment. Generally, I like to think of us as the, the rogues and the renegades of the scientific community. But you are a traditional scientist as well. I mean, you've, you've been to university, you've done very high level training. 
Yeah, so I have a PhD and I was a scientist at NASA before I decided that the traditional scientific environment lacks the risk-taking that needs to be done to actually push science forward. Speaking of which, are you supposed to be the first person who has actually done gene editing with this technology CRISPR on themselves? <laughs> so I am the first person to use CRISPR. CRISPR is this new modern gene editing technology that allows basically anybody to edit genes in most any organism inexpensively and fast. And, you know, for me, trying to get this technology to be used in humans so that we can push ahead and cure diseases is something that was uh, big on my mind. And what did you do to yourself? I injected myself with some DNA that was meant to modify the genes in my muscles, supposedly to give me bigger muscles. Now, I wasn't able to actually <laughs> detect that the gene editing worked, but, uh, you know, the idea was that this is safe for humans, it's possible, and we should go forward. I'm just looking at your picture on your wikipedia page was your hair that color before you did crispr on yourself hopefully it was actually i think the gene editing caused me to have different color hair but don't tell anybody you know <laughs> they'll try to buy it off of me but talking of things that go funny colors because you have taken this beyond just doing things that maybe some would regard as a bit outlandish like self-inflicted gene editing you have actually brewed up glowing green beers haven't you yeah. So, you know, we are trying to make gene editing accessible and available to everybody. I think genetic engineering is one of the most powerful technologies we have. So making it so people can experience it in their everyday life, like editing yeast so they can change color or, or fluoresce, you know, like glow in the dark. Or we've also worked on, you know, growing up chicken cells in Petri dish and make like a chicken nugget grown in the lab. So there's a lot of science, I think, that people can do and experience in their everyday life. You know, that's amazing. Did the beer actually glow? Yeah, it did. You have to keep the yeast in there because the yeast contain the glowing protein, but uh, it does glow. I mean, there are some cloudy beers where they, they do do that on purpose, so I could see that working. It, it got you into trouble, though, didn't it? The FDA the organization that regulate food and drugs in America had something to say about you doing that. Yeah, the FDA, you know, the California Department of Public Health and the state of California and everybody uh, comes after me. I think when you're working with new technologies and pushing boundaries, you know, people don't understand it completely. And so you get pushback from it. But to this date, I'm I'm talking to you not from jail, so I think things are still pretty good. <laughs> are you talking to me from the toilet, though? Because you also dabbled in in doing a transfusion. <laughs> you you literally changed all of your bacteria in your intestines at one point, didn't you? Yeah, you know, I had gut distress and, you know, IBS and was suffering from gut issues. And I thought that maybe I could take matters into my own hands because a lot of times the medical doctors would just tell me, you know, oh, you're stressed out, you know, don't be stressed, exercise. And you're like, how am I supposed to not be stressed? I, I don't get that. And so I, I took feces from a healthy donor and transplanted it into my body. Barry Marshall, he said the bacteria didn't taste that bad. Eating feces is a, is a whole other story. <laughs> 
Well, they, they say it's uh, a crapsule that you have to swallow, but maybe that's time for another, <laughs> that's the story for another show. But look, the, the key thing is this is a show all about self-experimentation. So why are you doing this and why are you using yourself to do these things on? It gives me the ability to do things I normally wouldn't be able to do because experimenting on other people, especially things that are risky, I think is unethical to me. You've also made a a COVID vaccine. You quite famously teamed up with a bunch of others and and you have made a COVID vaccine that you have self-administered. Has it worked? Yes. So we were able to detect neutralizing antibodies in our blood to the protein that, you know, the virus makes. Whether it works or not is a very complicated question that would probably require a you know big clinical trial. But um, for all intents and purposes, we saw results that were very positive. Uh, Jazar, I just want to finish by asking you really whether you think this is responsible, because obviously there are some pretty powerful things we can do in a garden shed with molecular biology these days. Do you think what you're doing is is encouraging people to to perhaps go beyond what's responsible and sensible? I could think there couldn't be something that was more responsible. You know, genetic engineering is the most powerful technology we have. We can literally engineer self-replicating matter. And to give that power to very few people in universities and big companies and to not let the public experience this technology, I, I think is wrong. So I think it's the greatest responsibility I have is to allow people to use this technology. Thank you for joining us and telling us all about it. It's been great fun. Josiah Zayna there. This week, we are meeting the people who poke, prod and occasionally poison themselves all in the name of science. We've come through history and arrived at the present. So let's move on to self-experimentation that's going on during the COVID pandemic. We've just heard from Josiah Zayner, who engineered his own COVID vaccine back in May. And he's not alone. Around the same time, a separate group of scientists formed an initiative called RADVAC to quickly synthesize a coronavirus vaccine based on available evidence. Now, instead of being a cutting-edge genetic vaccine, like the current ones we're getting from Pfizer and Moderna, they use small bits of coronavirus protein that are called peptides. And instead of injecting it, you just squirt the stuff up your nose. Rather than going through clinical trials, Radvax say their vaccine is one that people should make themselves and take themselves. And that's what over 100 geneticists have now done, among them Harvard's George Church. I asked him why. Well, there's a long history of even the modern vaccines, the people developing them, feeling that morally the right thing to do is not to test it on somebody that you're unwilling to test on yourselves. We did not want to necessarily be first in line, but we felt that if there's any risk, we should take the risks first. These had intrinsically low risk because most of the parts had all been tested. And it's it's a less medical procedure, if nothing else, because you're not injecting with a needle. Okay, crucial question. Do you know if it's worked? So what we have so far, and this is very preliminary, not peer-reviewed, is that it is safe. It was safe at the scale that we're using it. Sometimes you need to go to hundreds of thousands of people to find an occasional anaphylactic reaction, which there is for some of the messenger RNA doses that are happening with coronavirus. So it's safe, and it seems to be producing some kind of immune reaction in the nasal mucosa, but not in the blood. If you cover the nasal passages and the lungs, you're in great shape. You've found some kind of reaction. 
you don't yet know whether you're immune to the coronavirus. There's been relatively little intentional exposure, so we don't really know. We have intention to make this go through FDA testing, but we wanted to make sure that it was as transparent as possible and as accessible as possible to everyone in principle. We put a white paper on the internet that describes exactly how we make and how we test the vaccine. Now, in practice, most people are not going to care or act on that. Could someone like me make this coronavirus vaccine? So most of it's like kitchen recipe. The only part that's at all exotic is the ordering the peptides, but that's something you order. So it's like you would place an order for um, any custom item, you know, a photo mug or something. You just send them this recipe that, or, that we say, and they make it and they send it back to you. We estimate it's in the order of 50 cents a dose, probably less for manufacturer the scale. Is this sort of democratizing the vaccine, or is it closer to trusting people with something that is doesn't have the oversight of a, a state-run vaccine distribution and that people might hurt themselves with? Most vaccines, you find the negative consequences are quite rare, but you don't find it until you start treating millions of people. The same thing would happen with ours. As soon as we found the negative consequences, we would either you know, recommend that people be close to uh, EpiPen or otherwise figure out whether they would be at risk or not. But that hasn't happened yet. So far, no negative reactions. I mean, so far we have a better safety record, but that could just be because we have a much smaller cohort size. So I wouldn't make too much of that. But I think the critical thing is that you're much safer getting vaccinated than getting exposed to the pathogen. And it's going to be quite a while before we have vaccinated everybody. And so it'd be really nice if you could do the redosing in a convenient way where you don't have to go into a clinic full of sick people to get a, an injection. George Church. Chris, you, you just heard George's pitch. I mean, what do you think? Would you take up his offer? Well, I've met George and he was telling me about his work. And he's a very august scientist with a very, very powerful track record. And I think that's really the decider here. If someone offers you something and you never heard of them, they've got a fairly dubious provenance, you'd be much less likely to trust something they've cooked up than someone like, say, George Church, who has not just uh, his track record, but also he's, he's got his reputation to think of. So I think it would depend on what data they had to present to me in the first place that I should try something. And that if they hadn't grown extra arms or legs and they were still standing, I'd be more inclined to, to trust them. What do you think? You know, I, I, I just don't think I could get to the point where I would know enough. And I think probably a lot of people who, you know, are not doctors would agree with me. But I don't know that I can see the arguments for and against. Why don't we talk to someone who really knows about this area? And that's bioethicist Arthur Kaplan. He's at New York University and has actually written quite widely on the ethics of doing things like this. Arthur, welcome to the programme. What do you think? Do you, do you think George Church is on shaky ground here? Yeah, I do. I think he's on very shaky ground. Look, when you do vaccines, you're developing a product that you're planning to give to billions of people. You would have to have a manufacturing partner. You need to make sure you follow regulatory requirements because the risk of something going wrong at huge numbers is just too great. I also think this notion of self-experimentation, while it has some role to play in the history of medicine, we've learned a lot about experimentation and we know that it matters your health, your age, your gender, 
just showing that something works on one person or two people or even 10 people proves nothing about what's going to work in kind of the diversity of people that take drugs and vaccines today, not as it was in the 19th century. Even when it's somebody with a lot of reputation to lose, like George Church. And also, when you wrote your commentary in the journal Science last year, when a lot of this began to surface, you said, do-it-yourself DIY vaccine research is morally troubling. It's an obstacle to securing trust. So why wouldn't people trust it if it's got somebody with a good reputation behind it? Well, there's no doubt that George is a brilliant scientist, but that doesn't make people trust vaccines in particular. There are plenty of brilliant scientists who keep saying, take a vaccine, trust vaccines, and many, many people around the world do not. They worry that people are promoting their pet ideas. They worry that they're out to boost their reputation. They worry that they're out to make money. They're worried that they're shortcutting the regulatory process. So if you're going to get people to trust that a vaccine is something they ought to accept, there may be a few here and there who would say, if a leading scientist took it, then maybe I'll do it or maybe I'll brew it up in my basement. But that doesn't cover the vast majority of people with doubts, hesitancy, and I think saying, yes, it's a do-it-yourself vaccine. Go ahead, take it. Trust in it is not the uh, path forward to getting a lot of people to take vaccines. What did you make of what Josiah Zayner was saying when I put it to him that perhaps by encouraging people to do not just vaccines, but this sort of experimentation with tools that in the wrong hands can do dangerous things, is there not some degree of irresponsibility? And he said, well, he thinks it's irresponsible that the technology is only in the hands of a small group of individuals, scientists in academic institutions, corporate hands as well. Do you think he's got a point? No, it's not safe to take genetic engineering and uh, have people who aren't necessarily properly trained to handle it muddling around in their own homes with no supervision or accountability. These are powerful techniques. We know that many people around the world already don't trust things like genetically modified foods. And uh, again, if you want to ruin the future of genetic engineering, which I don't, either medically or for food, for animal use, or even in humans, then I think the easiest way to do that is to have people think that there are nuts in the basement doing what they want. So your view is that at the moment there's there's a fragile trust and that's easily broken because if, if things go wrong because of a lack of regulation or people just stepping outside the boundaries of what's sensible and then accidents do happen, let's face it, that will shatter what we do have left of that thread of trust and we might not get it back. Absolutely right. I think it would take one leak of a modified organism, one death from a do-it-yourself vaccine or drug, and all of a sudden you have uh, fundamentally damaged public trust in drugs and vaccines or genetic engineering technology. It's seen as too risky, too dangerous, just to have it in the hands, if you will, of amateurs. Look, the public can barely trust it when it's in the hands of professionals, even when there's some oversight. I I don't see it as... uh, doing anything but creating more mistrust. Where do you stand on on the point that we heard earlier from, I mean, it was the example given was the discovery of, of hashish and the person then documented their own reactions to it and so on. 
obviously this sort of self-experimentation is going on all the time around the world with illicit drug use and things like that. People are experimenting. Occasionally they might discover interesting things that uh, actually turn out to have enormous therapeutic potential, which if we were not doing that kind of thing, we wouldn't necessarily discover. People do try things, taste things, (laughs) chew on things, but that's different as a form of self-experimentation from saying, let's try and disseminate a product, let's get people to pick up on a drug or a vaccine in a big way. Finding out that something might have a beneficial impact on your headaches by chewing a unusual substance is a baby step, and you're not going to stop that, nor should you, but trying to develop products that uh, the world takes, that's not going to happen through self-experimentation alone. Has it not gone too far, though? Because just very briefly, Barry Marshall, whom we heard earlier, has said... He's doubtful Mm -hmm. in the present regulatory environment because of ethical controls and so on that he would make the same discovery again. But if you will, what we're talking about is the need to produce products and that's where the regulation is essential to cement that trust. Thank you, Arthur. That's Arthur Kaplan. He's at uh, New York University. It's a minefield, this, isn't it? All of it with the question of how far do we go? How far should we go? And thank you to our other guests this week, Katrine Soldu, Josiah Zayner and George Church. What do you think of self-experimentation then? Does it make someone a self-sacrificing pioneer or a reckless cowboy? Has it gone by the wayside or is it still a crucial and even anti-elitist tool? We're going to let you decide for yourself. And while you ponder on that, why not have a listen to Question of the Week? And Katie Haler has been sounding out this musical musing from Dennis. Assuming there are a finite number of musical notes, chords, notes and octaves, at what point, how many years, will we use all combinations of musical themes so that no more original music could be created? Well, Dennis, this question certainly got us naked scientists chatting. I just wonder if the premise is correct. Like, are there a finite number of musical notes? No, no, I don't think there's any limit unless you put other constraints on. Like, you could just play C forever and then a D. Well, you could put a time limit on it. Maybe how long would it take for us to run out of three-minute pop songs? And you've been mulling this over too. Listener Skip, for instance, reckons that over a Google of tunes are possible. So that's one followed by a hundred zeros. To add up the answer for us, here's creative computing expert Rebecca Feebrink. Let's start really simple. Ignoring harmony and rhythm completely, sticking to the really boring melodies that can just be played on one octave of eight white keys on a piano. Let's also just consider melodies of 14 notes, the length of the first phrase of Twinkle Twinkle. There are eight to the 14th combinations of such notes, over four trillion possible melodies. If we play 100 notes a minute, it would take us over 1,170,000 years to play all these melodies. Then, if we add very simple rhythm, like the ability to have eighth notes, quarter notes, or half notes as durations, this balloons to over six trillion years. Let's make this just a bit more realistic say the ability to play up to four notes at a time, with eight possible common durations between a sixteenth note and a whole note, and the ability to play any of the 88 notes on the piano. Even when the harmony and melody notes are restricted to have the exact same rhythms as each other, we'll need far more than a quadrillion, 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 quadrillion years to play all possible 14 chord long sequences. You might call this an overestimate, since most of these sequences won't sound very musical. 
and some are going to sound identical after we shift them up or down in key or change their tempo. But we're ignoring so many other meaningful musical variations here. Longer phrases and musical structures, more realistic rhythms, varying instrumentation or adding drums or synthesizers or studio effects. By any estimate I make, you'd have plenty of variations still left to try out by the time the universe potentially ends in 200 billion years. And at that point, whatever life forms are around will probably have very different ideas about what music is anyway. So, Douglas Adams' Restaurant at the End of the Universe should have plenty of great tunes then. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Here's the question we'll be answering next time, and it's from David. Would a fetus develop differently in zero gravity conditions? So can you help to deliver an answer to David's cosmic conundrum? If so, why not join in the debate on our forum? That's at nakedscientist.com slash forum. You can also ask a question of your own at chris at thenakedscientist.com. There's also a form on our website, nakedscientist.com slash question for those questions. That's all we've got time for this week on The Naked Scientist. Next time, the UK government aimed to get vaccines to 15 million people by the 15th of February. Are we going to make it over the line? And where are these vaccines coming from? Join us for a tour of factories and pharma giants. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Phil Sansom, and from all of us here at the Naked Scientist team, until next time, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.